Our topic today is uh, an absolutely important one, both the two key words in it, the word Kriya and the word Karma. <laughs> of course, I'm talking in India, and so neither of those words are foreign to you. But I have also found that over time, words develop meanings of their own, and individuals interpret words however they want to interpret them. That's why communication, even among people who love each other, is often extremely, extremely difficult. Because we, a word is a symbol of something, and what it symbolizes to each person depends on what they've experienced, what their context is, how it's been presented to you in the past. So let's just start from the very beginning um, with the word karma, even though it's well known. It's also important uh, in, for the sake of this discussion because most of you raised your hands with familiarity with Paramhansa Yogananda, familiar, familiarity with Autobiography of a Yogi. Autobiography of a Yogi, of course, was published in the West first. Yogananda wrote it in 1946 and it was published in New York and passed around across the United States and then, oddly enough, it made its way back to India. He was the pioneer of what has really just become our present reality where we're becoming one globe and there is this special um, migration of Indians into America. I live in Silicon Valley, <laughs> so I, this audience looks about as familiar to me as the audience I talk to where I live. When a friend of mine took me to Starbucks in New Delhi, and uh, we just walked in and I looked in and what I saw was a lot of Indian people with their Apple computers open doing their work and I couldn't tell whether I was across the street from my own temple in Palo Alto or whether I was somewhere here because this is what we're living with and this is not an accident this isn't globalization and all of those realities are actually came after this powerful divine plan that is described in Autobiography of a Yogi of the solution to many of the great difficulties that we're facing in our world today is the, the bringing together of Western efficiency, Western understanding of the material world and Eastern, primarily Indians, understanding of the non-physical, of the spiritual world. And for a long time these realities have been kept separate but now that we're moving into a higher age now that the globe is becoming one, there's no necessity for these realities to be separate anymore. Now we're bringing it together. So when Yogananda, whom I, I tend to call Master, and I, you'll hear me calling him Master, and I re refer to Swami Kriyananda as Swamiji. When Master came to America, just a moment, let me find my thought there for a second. Oh yes, he, he came at the behest of Babaji, and in Autobiography of a Yogi, you may remember there's a paragraph where Yogananda says that Babaji has been very, Babaji's responsibility in creation is for the long-term welfare and the long-term development, the rise and fall of civilizations and societies. And then also in a way that's very hard for us to understand with the human mind, simultaneously these great masters and Babaji specifically is also concerned with the individual welfare of each one of us. Inside that book there is the extraordinary sentence 
anyone who says the name of Babaji with devotion <clears throat> attracts to himself or herself an immediate blessing, which speaks of a consciousness, excuse me, <clears throat> which speaks of a consciousness, as Swamiji often says, that is not only infinite, but is infinitesimal and is listening to every heart and simultaneously <clears throat> guiding the development of the whole planet. And so in Autobiography of a Yogi, it speaks of Babaji and Jesus Christ. And now I would never have the courage to write things like this, and so I repeat them because Yogananda published them and I've come to believe in his absolute truthfulness. He said both great masters of East and West are concerned about what they see, sectarianism, race prejudice, religious um, narrowness and bigotry, and that none of these qualities will bring us the world or the life that any of us want, and that Babaji has planned the slow development of, of higher consciousness as we move from, dark, from a darker into a higher age. And Yogananda describes himself as the, the culmination of that plan of Babaji's. I was thinking recently, uh, just in the last few days, because in this area and in this country, of course, there's a lot of devotion to Babaji. And we, we know Babaji to be a deathless master in the Himalayas who has vowed, according to the stories and autobiography of a yogi, to keep his body through this entire cycle of creation extraordinary promises and simultaneously he's actively involved in what's going on in this world and in the individual spiritual development and welfare of each one of us this is the extraordinary reality of spiritual life is that it is infinite and immense beyond comprehension and it is also absolutely totally present inside the heart of each one of us. Uh, the mind simply can't accept it, can't uh, comprehend it, but gradually over time love and intuition begin to give us an understanding of what we're talking about. So when Yogananda came to America, he didn't come with, oh, I've invented something new. Americans love to invent something new. You know, when I first traveled, uh, when I first left my home country of America, I, was, I didn't travel until I was in my 30s. And I first went to Europe, and then soon after I came to India for the first time. And it was very interesting to me because in first I, I, I first had this experience in Rome and then in Florence, where the people who lived in Florence felt like they were very important because Michelangelo had also lived in Florence. Of course, Michelangelo had lived there hundreds of years before, and nobody I was talking to was related to him in any way at all, <laughs> but merely the fact that they were Florentines and they had this great tradition gave them a lot of uh, value in their own eyes. And then, of course, I came to India, and we can claim here, we can claim Arjuna, you know, we can claim Krishna, we can claim Rama, we can claim so much that, in fact, does give tremendous power and force to the culture, it's true. Now I'm from America, which is barely like, what, 200 years old now, and we, have, we did have 
a very noble indigenous people on the land when, when, when we, whoever we were, arrived, but we immediately obliterated them, so we didn't really have much respect at that time for what was happening. So we, we just had wilderness. We had nothing behind us. And so the, the magnificence of America, which is partly why it came about the way it did, is that the only thing we have is what we could create ourselves. There was, there was no historical value that could give us status. It had to be created. Interestingly, Master said that's why he had to take his teachings to America. Not only because the West was totally ignorant, and, but it was just a blank slate. And he was fond of saying, in India, where people have had this tradition for millennia, and everyone knows that God-realization Self-realization is a hard, long path. And we also know that we have many lifetimes in which to do it, so we don't have to do it now. We can just wait, <laughs> right? <laughs> he said he went to America, where no one knew anything about it. And he said, we can realize God. And Americans said, sure, we can do it, you know, because we didn't know any better. But that gave him the ability to present it. And also because Americans are self-made by nature and by culture. This is all God's marvelous Leela. We can think about it in terms of politics or sociology, but that's really not at all interesting. This is happening from Babaji in the Himalayas on a level we can barely imagine. And what we're looking at is we're looking at an unfolding plot, which indeed is magnificent with all the characters in place. So Yogananda was able to come to America and there he wrote Autobiography of a Yogi and at one point Kriyananda, who was a young man and his disciple, asked him, he said, because Kriyananda himself was introduced to all of this by Yogananda, he didn't even know the word guru until he read Autobiography of a Yogi in 1948 is when he did. He said, is this a new religion that you're bringing? Yogananda said, no, this is an ancient universal truth, but it's a new expression of it for a new age. And that's why he wrote Autobiography. That's why he wrote about Babaji, even though he said he did it by divine permission. Because prior to that, even the existence of Babaji was not world known. Of course, it was known more in India, but even then, he was a faraway figure. Most of what is told about him is from that book. And also what Yogananda put into that book was this ancient technique of Kriya Yoga. Of course, he didn't teach it, as he explained, because it's necessary for one to be appropriately prepared before you learn it. That was the, the only reason for keeping it secret, is that people need to know how to use it. But he spoke of the possibility of self-transformation that is completely in the hands of the individual who desires to transform himself. And this is a revolution. Because up until now, both East and West, we have pujaris who know the proper ceremonies, we have priests who are appointed by God, who are the necessary intercessors, uh, intermediaries, we have dogmas, we have 
hundreds and hundreds of pages of scripture where everything is all explained and we have to sort of one of my uh, Indian friends told me that Hinduism is one of the religions, one of the few religions where you have to pay someone to do it for you. <laughs> Not as an indulgence, but you don't know. You don't know the ritual. You don't know the ceremony. Somebody has made a profession out of knowing those things, but it takes it out of the hands of the individual. And what Yogananda brought at the request of Babaji was to put responsibility for our own spiritual destiny right into our own hands by the method and the method he called is Kriya. Now Kriya's, Kriya just means action. It's not a specific thing in itself. Many, many people use the word Kriya and they use it appropriately. And it is appropriate that of all the names that Yogananda could have pulled out of the lexicon, he chose the word that simply means action because he wanted us to understand that this is not a sectarian reality. This is not the possession of any one church, country, teaching, priest, pujari, nothing. It is simply an action that any individual who wants to can learn and carry out if it matters to them. You see, and this is the whole sort of game that we play here being human beings is that we are created with the ability to choose we can we can choose our state of consciousness now we don't necessarily feel that we're choosing with freedom because there's that other word and that other word in today's talk is karma right and karma is uh well I enjoy, I've enjoyed watching because I have been involved in this for such a long time. When I started my spiritual journey, it was in the mid-60s in America, which in America at least is now history. It's, it's the hippie movement in America, and, it's in, and my young friends study it in school. It's really, for those of you who, are, who share my chronological development, you understand what it feels like when your own life becomes history. <laughs> it's not history, it's my life. <laughs> but when we started, and we really did start a revolution in the West at that time, um, we were, uh, was a second, I lost my thought, give me a moment here. Uh, oh yes. We were having to, you know, learn all these vocabulary words. Karma, chakras, guru, uh, vritti, I mean there's lots and lots of words that only exist in Sanskrit. The people who spoke English were not interested in these things. They were interested in shades of money, <laughs> mostly. Consciousness has always been the responsibility of India. But nonetheless, a word like karma just sort of walked into our world and has now become just common parlance in, in almost all languages. Everybody uses the same word. And the more common a word becomes, the less likely it is to be understood. But I've also come to understand that even in the context of its country of origin, the way Yogananda interpreted these things and gave it a new expression, he did it not for the sake of scholarly clarity or you know academic discussion or anything like that. Yogananda's entire uh, reason for incarnating, for living in America and coming back to the West, sending 
Swami Kriyananda back to India, bringing all of us to India, sending all of your people all around the world now to, to take this wonderful culture to every English-speaking and non-English-speaking country there is, is because it's time for a new expression. So Yogananda's definition, as Swamiji really taught it to us, of karma is really, is really simple. It's unlearned lessons. Your karma is something you don't already know, you don't yet know about the nature of reality, the nature of truth, and the secret of happiness. Because we're all on this journey, you know, and this journey did not begin when we incarnated into this body and put on this particular costume that we wear now. This costume is the next one of many, 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 many that we've worn and in most of our cases will not be the last one that we wear. This is the character that we get to have right now. And we're drawn into this particular body, this particular culture, this reality. And, and for those of you who wish to stay this afternoon, I'm going to go into all of these things in much more detail because of the energy pattern that we have in our chakras, because of the vibration of consciousness of who we have become. And so we're born into a situation that exactly suits everything that we don't yet know about what it is to be perfectly happy, perfectly free. We had, um, our friends were singing the song, If You're Seeking Freedom, you know, and it's, it's written in a lighthearted way and it offers us all the different ways. If you're seeking freedom by having a revolution and getting power that way and making everybody conform to your ideas, nowadays politics is so contentious and everyone believes that their ideas are really the final ideas but we don't really see, Swamiji remarked once that, you know, Jesus Christ or Lord Krishna himself could be elected president of any of these countries now. And I think there's just too much entrenched energy that to, to really make a difference because what we're watching is we're watching these just sort of cosmic forces play themselves out. And if we imagine that the way to find happiness is to make the world conform to my ideas of what it should be, we get to have the experience of trying that. Okay, It's a theory about happiness. And all the sages and all the saints, all the great masters, all the scriptures, give us a recipe for happiness. It's complete surrender to the divine. It's living in harmony with higher principles. We have Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. We have all these different ideas and all of the rituals and uh, celebrations, you know, we just, of course, all finished the Ganesha celebration here, which is just so filled with lively and wonderful energy. And Ganesha represents to us the overcomer of obstacles. And if you look through all of the symbology, you really see that these are profound life lessons that are being offered to us and we get to find out how much we're able to live them or how much we're not able to live them. And we're drawn into a circumstance that exactly matches every idea we have about what's going to make me happy. And it may not seem like that to us because a lot of the experiences we have don't, don't seem to work that way. There's a very interesting uh, story, a friend of mine 
I, I lived for 16 years in Ananda village, which is Ananda's first and most highly developed community in America. It's a rural community on a thousand acres of land where about 350 people have their homes now. We just celebrated the 50 year anniversary of that community, which is quite notable, which coincides with my 50 years also. And those children, the community especially in the earlier years was almost entirely Western, now it's more international. But uh, the children there were raised, at least their parents were, are dedicated to the spiritual practice of meditation and of Kriya. And so sometimes the parents would use this philosophy on their children when other forms of discipline didn't work. <laughs> especially as the children got into adolescence and so on. And, as children would do, they would complain and they would say things like, you know, you're not a very good mother to me, I don't like you very much. And mother could respond by saying, it's not my fault you chose me. <laughs> because if we start thinking of reincarnation and karma, then I didn't impose myself on you, you imposed yourself on me. So one of our friends who uh, was a sort of an uncle to everybody in the community, the teenagers would come to him in a, you know, a that kind of rebellious mood and insist that they never would have chosen that one for my mother and never chosen that one for my father, you know, just in the way that, that children feel. And so this friend of mine went to Swami Kriyananda and said, you know, like, what am I supposed to say? Because in fact, there was a previous incarnation and in fact, this was a joint decision. And what am I supposed to say? Now, that in itself was just an amusing thing. Swamiji's answer was interesting. He said, we don't necessarily choose every single detail of the life that we come into, but we respond to broad currents that are going to be helpful. You know, in the West, in California specifically, where everybody's always innovative and trying to try to get a machine to do it, do it faster, or something smaller and more... Uh, quick, you know, where when you have to wait an extra 15 seconds for something to load up on your phone or your computer, there'll be a whole company dedicated to reducing that 15 seconds down to two seconds. <laughs> so the constant question I get whenever I give classes is, isn't there a shortcut? <laughs> isn't there a faster way? Isn't there a secret technique you haven't yet told me or that we can invent that'll make it easier, right? And that's the karma of, of that country, impatience, eagerness. Here, the, the karma that I'm always asked about is family. And let me think, family. <laughs> and let me think again, family. Yeah. <laughs> this very interesting, elaborate system of relationships that are ongoing. In the West, we live much more independently. I mean, I don't think it's exceptional at all, but a friend told me yesterday her immediate family is 45 people. That's just the immediate family, like that. So there's always this long complication. Now, I don't think we made a list in the astral world of every one of them, but a few of them, or the context was enough to bring it in. And then what we find is we find constant opportunities to find out whether or not I can maintain an inner contact with the greater reality, whether I can maintain an equanimity in the face of challenge, whether I can be drawn out of my center and persuaded that somebody has actually really done something unfair to me and now I'm justified 
and being angry, taking revenge, stealing from them, uh, losing my peace of mind. I have a right to be unhappy now. The divine law says our, our true nature is bliss. The divine law says we're born in here to be perfect expressions of divine reality. But most of us find that that's a challenge. And that's the unlearned lesson. That's the karma. The karma is that we exist on a vibration of awareness that is vulnerable to being hurt, that is vulnerable to, to having its happiness interrupted, that begins to think that I am not a child of the universe, but I am just a helpless, separate being out here, and everything that happens to me makes me feel terrible. And that's the battle we fight, isn't it? Intuitively, we know that. If we did not think that happiness was our birthright, we wouldn't be unhappy. You understand? We're unhappy because we know that that's not a natural condition. You know, we're lonely because we know that's not a natural condition. Deep within ourselves is planted this intuitive divine awareness of who we really are. But all of these unlearned lessons interfere with it. Now, we watch little children grow, don't we? They come into this world, the, the, the soul is fully present. It's not as if the soul kind of comes in gradually. Um, Swamiji has commented, and it's a very important thing to keep in our minds, that the mother and the father create the physical vehicle for a soul to express its destiny. But the mother and the father do not create either the soul or its destiny. And the full intelligence, the full personality, the full um, package of karma that's going to have to be worked out is present at the moment of conception because this soul is just traveling through. This is us also. From the moment of conception, there is this trajectory that we're supposed to learn. And the trajectory is to reclaim for ourselves that state of perfect happiness that all the masters tell us is our true destiny. But this karma is not easy to learn because we have these lessons are not easy to learn. This karma is not easy to overcome because for many incarnations, we've been acting out according to our own perception of where happiness comes from, of what causes suffering, and even just our basic concept about what's real. What is real? We, we forget about death. We just think that this life that I'm living is the real life, that to make myself comfortable, to please all the people around me, to, to stay out of trouble, whatever it might be, we have a long list of what we think is real. And we forget, oh, this is a journey. This is a journey of expanding consciousness. And so we create in the, in the spine, in the chakras, and this is what we'll go into more detail later, we create these patterns of energy that are active patterns. They're not just like passive things like a collage pasted on the spine. These are, are whirlpools. That's what a vritti, that's what a chakra is, is a, a wheel. These are whirlpools of energy that actually continuously draw our, our attention into themselves. This is why somebody will say something to you that you don't particularly like, and before you have time to think, you've reacted. Right? Or at least I'll speak for myself. 
you know, my mind often, my mouth works faster than my mind, which is really an unfortunate characteristic, right? Because there's a whirlpool of energy that says, this is how I respond, this is how I've always responded. And it's an unlearned lesson because we haven't necessarily noticed whether in the end it really brings me the happiness that I'm seeking. And so, in Autobiography of a Yogi, in the chapter on Kriya Yoga, Master talks about, you know, how we gradually learn these lessons, which is to say overcome karma. You know, we have to live properly for a long time, and we have to notice. You know, with little children, when we train them, we try to train them that actions have consequences. You know, if you get mad at your friends and you pick up the toy and you pound your friend on the head with the toy, he's not going to want to play with you again. You know, if somebody else has a dessert that you want and you just grow up and go and take it and run away and eat it, he's not going to invite you over again. We sort of get these lessons like this, but we don't understand or we don't remember that it never stops. Because we're all children of Divine Mother, and just as our human mothers are training us, our Divine Mother is continually training us. And so we get to, to find out, if I blame you for my unhappiness, does that really work for me? And Divine Mother wants us to learn even more profoundly than the human mother wants us to learn. And she just keeps giving us the chance to keep learning these lessons. So one way that we learn, and this is self-evident, and this is what Master writes in the autobiography, is that we live properly and we have experiences. And you know, our desires and our involvements and our ambitions, all of these are actually God-given. Because it's these uh, compelling inner realities push us into circumstances in which the karma gets to arise in which we get to see, we get one more try to see if we can learn this lesson. The lesson of perfect love, of perfect service, of perfect freedom. It's not subservient um, <clears throat> harmony at any price. It's the power of Babaji awakened within us that allows us, as Yogananda put it, to stand unshaken amidst the crash of breaking worlds. This is not a small project that we're engaged in. We're infinite in our potential, and that's what's being asked of us. So we can work through all of that, which most of us do, just by life itself. And if we're awake and sincere in our desire for truth, we always progress a little, or else we progress a lot. You know, life is continuing expansion of awareness. We just become more aware of realities that we didn't know before. But then Master also talks about Kriya from a completely different angle, because all of these realities that we call ourself are not really the physical body. They're not the hands or the elbow or the ear or anything like that. They're an energy pattern around which the body is created, and the body is created in relation to match that energy pattern, and it's that energy pattern, which is the chakras, and the karma in the chakras. The chakras are the medium by which karma is carried from life to life, and that karma is just a vibration. It's a vibration of perception of what is true, 
where my happiness comes from and what causes me suffering. And it's a vibration. And we keep tuning into that vibration habitually because it's there. So what Yogananda offers us with Kriya, which was the, the, the gift that Babaji has given to the world at this particular time. In autobiography they tell the story of Babaji initiating his disciple Lahiri Mahashaya who then went back to Varanasi and initiated secretly thousands of people into Kriya and one of them was the guru of Yogananda and then Yogananda was sent to the West then he brought it all forward and then here I'm standing you know it's an extraordinary long and gorgeous story and at the heart of it is what I was saying earlier which is Yogananda handed to us the potential to transform ourselves from the inside out because it's a long process to overcome karma just by living through it because sometimes we create as much as we resolve in the process of resolving this issue we accidentally create that one and then when we go over to deal with this one we accidentally create that one and it's it's a long slow thing so an autobiography master describes Kriya, the practice of Kriya, a specific inner action, inward action, as the airplane route, that's what he calls it, as compared to the bullet cart route, where we move very slowly, we can move very fast, because if we can change our inner vibration, then we become completely different. I mean, think about it, as we think about our own evolution insofar as we can track it and remember it in this incarnation that we live, we can see that sometimes we just begin to understand something and then all of a sudden our whole relationship to life is completely different, isn't it? It's just that something somehow shifts within us and who we are is different. And we notice that the same circumstance comes and we just respond differently to us. It just doesn't upset us or cause us to react in the same way. We've suffered, usually. We've seen what the lesson is. We've absorbed the lesson, and then we've actually become someone else. So what Kriya allows us to do is that... I'm sorry, this always happens. (laughs) What Kriya allows us to do is that it actually allows us to change the vibration directly. And the, the, the practice of Kriya that Yogananda himself recommended, the Kriya that he recommended... he said is you know ancient and it was taught by Jesus to his disciples and great great masters for ages because it simply deals with realities as they are and one kriya as as Yogananda uh, teaches it is essentially one inhalation and exhalation unfortunately it's not just the inhalations and exhalations we're all doing right now that would be really nice wouldn't it if we all just sit here and breathe and then we all walk out and we're different but the problem is we're breathing all the time and uh, our karma sitting with someone. I would call it the great honor of sitting with someone when they exit their body. But it's, it's extraordinary, especially from the yogic perspective, because since I've lived with this so long, and in the course of my life I've sat with a dozen or more people, including my own father, when he took his last breath. But especially if a person does not pass quickly, but, but there's a period of time, days or hours, in which you can feel that their consciousness is withdrawing and even though from the feet upwards you you know the life force begins to 
come back into the center until life itself is nothing but breath. And you're, you're there and everyone who's in the room is just listening to the breath. I, I, I just, it's, there's something so, so, so much bigger than what appears to be happening when a soul is exiting the body. I'm not able to watch them. I'm not able to see them on the other side. But I can feel what happens. As long as they're breathing, they're still there. And then there'll be just that last, there'll be the last exhalation. And oftentimes the, the exhalations and inhalations will be irregular. So a person will exhale, and then everybody will wait. Then there's one more inhalation, and then an exhalation, and everyone waits, and then finally there's an exhalation that is not followed by an inhalation. And in that moment, everything is different. You see, breath has that much power. And so what the action that Kriya is, is how to use that power. And how to use that power to actually dissolve these vrittis that are within us by lifting our own vibration to the point where all those vibrations that are lower than our awareness are simply released, released from the hold because we see it differently. Isn't that how we change? We change because we see it differently. Oh, it's just not worth it to get upset about that anymore. Oh, it's really not my problem that this person is so unpleasant. Oh, I really don't need to have that job. This job I have is perfectly fine. Oh, I thought I really needed that much money, but I'm really quite content with this. And that we just see it differently. But what's happened is our perception of reality has changed. And that perception is a vibration. And when we work with the breath, what the breath connects us to is a higher dimension of reality because the breath leads us all the way back to infinity to the point even where we breathe our last and leave the body. So the karma that we're working with, we work at it then from both sides. We work at it from the side of inwardly by using the breath in the right way and understanding the chakras and the vrittis, we simply gradually shift our vibration. And once you shift your vibration, you know, it's, a, it's the oddest thing because we feel ourselves to be such a fixed reality. But we are, in fact, nothing but an energy pattern. This isn't even Vedanta. This is ordinary Western science at this point. We are nothing but an energy pattern held in place by certain fixed ideas, which can be fixed attachments, fixed desires, fixed regrets, whatever they are. If you can, if you can overcome that center point, then you would simply become someone else. If you think about the worst criminal in the world, if he has a revelation of another reality and begins to behave like a saint, he becomes a saint. Same face, same body, same hands, same arms. It's just how we see reality and how we respond to it. And the great gift that Babaji has sent to the world is Kriya, action. Action which can be ours, you know. Now I'm, <clears throat> I guess I'm sort of trying to sell Kriya to you. I didn't really <laughs> think about myself when I got up here. I wasn't really thinking about that. But you know, I myself, and sure Joe mentioned it, <clears throat> I was 22 when I met Swami Kriyananda. 
I, I was a very old 22, is the only way I can think about it. Not that I had much life experience, but I think I had a lot of life experience before I got there. I remember as a very small child just being really worried about um, the meaninglessness of the world around me and the fact that nobody around me seemed to be any smarter than I was. That was making me really super nervous. And the older I got, it made me even more nervous. And it was, it was made worse by the fact that by the criteria that people were measuring things by, I was quite uh, considered to be quite capable. But by the criteria of my own longing, I knew that I wasn't. And in fact, I became almost, uh, I became, it, it, for a person who was as competent as I was, I was stunningly insecure. Because I knew that the competency for which I was being rewarded was not going to guarantee either happiness or lack of suffering. And what I wanted was happiness and lack of suffering, and nobody was talking to me about that. So when I was 18, which again doesn't seem very old, but it's, it was a long 18 years as far as I was concerned, somebody gave me a book by Vivekananda. And it was, it was like, and this was the 60s, this is when all this was starting in California, it was like I, I exhaled. It's almost like I've been holding my breath for 18 years and like, oh, there's somebody on the planet somewhere who knows something. And that was a great relief to me. But then a few more years passed and I, I knew that there were people who existed who understood how to live, but I had never met one. And then in November of 1969, I met one and that was Swami Kriyananda. He literally walked into a room, a room a little smaller than this one, and I was at the back wall and he came into the, the dais like this. As soon as he walked in, and I, I just thank God every day. I have no idea how I knew, but I knew. He just walked in, and I, my, my inner self said to me, he, he knows, he's living it. And when I thought about it later, I realized his aura had no boundary. That was the only way I could think about it. He just, he, his aura went to the back of the room where I was and went out, passed through the wall, and I have no idea where it stopped. And there was just, there was, there was victory in his very being. He was victorious over the forces that held me. And I made an instant decision that I have never for a moment regretted, which is wherever he is, I will be, and I will, I will, cling to this pole star until I have absorbed as much as I possibly can of who he is. And that became Kriya. That became Yogananda, Babaji, Autobiography of a Yogi, things I didn't even know before then. And it's impossible for me to say, except I can tell by the looks on many of your faces that you understand, the difference between having the right Kriya and I'm not just talking about the meditation technique, between knowing what to do, knowing where it comes from, having a, a line in creation that becomes the, the starting point and the measuring stick for everything else, between having that and not having that, it's a night and day difference. So I guess what I'm saying to you is, there is a tremendous possibility for happiness in this world. There's a tremendous possibility for freedom. Literally, tremendous isn't enough. There's an infinite possibility for freedom. And the glorious news is, it's all in our hands. 
It's all in our hands. The only question is whether we pick it up and use it. Any part of it, you know, one doesn't have to don a loincloth and go off to the Himalayas. One just needs to take, even as Krishna said, even a little practice of this inward religion will free us from dire fears and colossal sufferings. And uh, <clears throat> Jesus' disciples, after he was resurrected and he had overcome death, they called it the good news. And I have always loved that phrase, you know. And that's what Swamiji delivered to me, and that's what my honor is to deliver to you. There is good news, there is Kriya. Karma can be overcome. <coughs> Um, and if we, it, it, it's, it's there to be delivered into our hands if we simply call with devotion on the name of Babaji and willingly ask for that help to come to us. So, God bless you. Swami Kriyananda Light Bearer. The book is a compilation of all those 50 years and more that uh, Asha lived with Swamiji and everything that she saw in him, about him, through him. What was that victorious life that Asha is talking about? Because it wasn't an easy life, but it was a victorious life. In fact, I don't know, Asha, if you'd like to say a word or two about it so that it. I can. I can. <coughs> So if, after you said a few words, I'd like to. <laughs> um, I was 24 when Swamiji asked me to write this book, and uh, fortunately he also said, not yet. <laughs> but because he asked me to write it, and I, by that time I already knew that uh, I was witness to something that was extraordinary and that I could tell it wasn't just for me. And I had an inclination to be a writer, he saw that in me. So he, he gave me the responsibility to eventually do the biography. So from the age of 24, I'm now 72, until he passed in 2013, I always, whenever I was with him, which was a lot, although I didn't live always in the same community where he was, I always carried a notebook. I was never without a pencil and a notebook and often with a recorder. So I ended up with literally thousands of pages of notes over what turned out to be a 45-year relationship chronicling everything that happened. Swami's life was extraordinarily challenging, just way beyond the average, with health, money, betrayals, litigation, uh, disappointments, and simultaneously the practice of Kriya and the facing into and the realization that there we can stand unshaken amidst the crash of breaking worlds. Too many biographies, though, of of spiritually great people lose, lose the aspect of it that links their experience to ours. And Swami Kriyananda was very specific in the way he presented himself to the world. He never accepted the role of a guru, he only accepted the role of disciple until the very end of his life. And he felt that what was needed in this world was an example of what it means to be a disciple which is what it means to be engaged in this world with the right response 
with the power to actually overcome. So this is a chronological story from when I first met Swami until he took his last breath. Narayani and Shurja were present at that moment, I wasn't. And when he took his last breath and all that he dealt with and how he dealt with it. So even if your interest is not so much in Swami personally, although perhaps by the time you finish reading it you might feel that way, if you're serious about how to live a spiritual life, I think this book could be very helpful. It certainly has been instructive to many, many, many thousands of people until now. So it's, in a way, it's my uh, Guru Dakshina also, because this was my uh, way of saying thank you for all that he gave to me. And I offer it to you entirely in that spirit. And I hope that if you feel guided, that something of the light which has guided me will also touch your life through it.